All right, uh, years ago, people went to Jerusalem, Old Testament. So when, initially when David took the city of Jerusalem, it was the capital. Rocked along like that for a few years. Then became clear that that was the place where the temple was going to be. And so there was the movement then to bring the Ark of the Covenant into some kind of geographic relationship to the city of Jerusalem. David was said, you know, you're not to be the, the person that builds this temple because you're a man of blood. Uh, so your son will do it, Solomon. So Solomon came and he established that temple. Now when that temple was established, the sacrifices that had been taking place out in the tabernacle were now to be taking place in this temple. So all the way back time of Moses, sacrifice in the sense of what we think of it being as an Old Testament part of the worship of Israel came into being. And we find the information about sacrifice primarily in the book of Leviticus. In the first six chapters, we learn about five sacrifices. And then in chapter 16, we learn about that sacrifice that we call the Day of Atonement. Today we hear it referred to as yom, that's the word, Hebrew word for day, kippur, that's atonement. So when you hear yom kippur spoken about, that's what we're talking about, the day of atonement. If you want to read about what was to go on there, it's found in Leviticus 16. So you had sacrifices. Then you had the end of those sacrifices when the destruction of the temple and that kind of correlates with the sacrifice of Christ that came some 30 years before that, uh, 40 years before that. And then we think of sacrifice today. Where is sacrifice in our life in that sense? So when we look at this today, Christ is our sacrifice. We want to see that there are the sacrifices of the Old Testament that are fulfilled in Christ, we want to see that Christ is the perfect sacrifice, but we also want to make sure that we understand that Christ is our sacrifice. Know something out there that's perfect is one thing, but to know that that which is perfect belongs to you is really something entirely different. There are a lot of people that know things about God, know things about Christ, and really their knowledge to a great extent is pretty accurate. But the problem is that they have never appropriated that to themselves by putting their faith in Christ. So we want to talk about that. Now, in Hebrews chapter 9, it talks about the old era of the goats and lambs and all of that. And then it talks about the new era that has been inaugurated through Christ. So let me read this, uh, beginning in chapter 9. Uh, 9 and verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all time into the holy places not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus 
securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of the defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our consciences from dead works to serve the living God. And then in chapter 10, beginning at verse 19, Therefore, brethren, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience in our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now when we talk about Christ as the fulfillment of these Old Testament sacrifices, we look at Leviticus 1 through 6 to see what were the nature of those Old Testament sacrifices. Now, I want you to think about it. All these sacrifices were, after the tabernacle were taking place in Jerusalem. So, it's supposed to be on multiple times during the year that the people that lived out and about in the various tribes would come to one of the three, or preferably all three of the major feasts that were held in Jerusalem. And during those feasts, there would be sacrifices. So the people would leave where they were, and they would make the odyssey, the journey, to Jerusalem. They would, as the language says in the scripture, go up to Jerusalem, because Jerusalem was on a high mountain. So wherever you went in Jerusalem, you had to go up. That's why you find that there. And the sense of these, these times of gathering were that they were festivals. Now just kind of think for a second. I'm saying sacrifices, and they're living as if they're festivals. Does that seem odd? Does that seem odd? Well, that's something to just kind of let it anchor in there. Let that oddity kind of sink in. Think about it. We look at it as awful. They looked at it as a festival. Okay, look at it this way. Now, I don't know about you. I mean, when I was little, and I used to think about there's just got to be a way for me to get out of this church and get outside in that car. There's just got to be a way to do that. Because if I can get out in that car, 
I can just reach up on the dashboard and turn that knob, that radio's going to come on. That was back in the days before the radios had keyed to the ignition. You could just turn them on. Remember those days? Yeah. And I would have escaped. And I thought a lot about that. In fact, I, more than once, I was right out of that car, <laughs> right back into that church. Obviously, I wasn't getting a whole lot out of that, right? Church stuff. And today, what do we have? You know, m many of us go to church, and we really go to church, and we come out of church, and we are excited, we're thankful as we can be. But when we talk to our friends that don't go to church, what do they often say? Well, I come out of church feeling worse than I went in. I hope that's not your experience. It's certainly not my experience, but it is the experience of many. Well, just thinking about this Old Testament business, where all these sacrifices, the people called them festivals, and the people that went away, that came to these festivals, they came with guilt. They came burdened with sin. And they came, and there were sacrifices offered. And when they went home, they knew something that had happened. And it was very concrete. Those animals had died. Their blood had been shed. Portions of the fat had been burnt. Some of the animals had burnt completely up. Some of them just the fat. Various sacrifices. But what did they know? God accepted those sacrifices, and as a result of it, their sin had been cleansed away. The burden, the guilt, the shame, all of this kind of stuff had been lifted. And they went home with hearts that were filled with joy. Now, that's what worship service is supposed to be for us every week. We come, we're mindful, we need to be reminded of all Christ has done. Sometimes we, we get it only in the sense of, well, make sure so that you know that you have eternal life. But you know, if you're like me, I kind of checked that off at about age 22. I had some problems with assurance of salvation, so I had to check some things off for a couple years. But after a while, that whole idea of the assurance of salvation, that came and went. You know, what didn't come and went was my sinning. That seems to have, there seems to be a propensity for me to sin. Like not every week, you know, nothing like that. Rather about every day, something like that. Like this morning, and I don't want to think about it, but I'm almost sure it will happen this afternoon. Right? That you all kind of relate to that? Okay. But when I come and I, I know the gospel's being preached and I know the gospel's telling me about a sacrifice, a sacrifice that cleanses away my sin, my shame, my guilt. That's what we're talking about here. Now look, why were there five different sacrifices? There was a burnt offering, a grain offering, a peace offering, a sin offering, and a guilt offering. Then there was the Day of Atonement. Why all of that? 
relationships are complex. Have you ever noticed that? Sustaining relationships can be complex. It takes effort. There are dimensions to a relationship. And so when we think about these Old Testament sacrifices, we look at the various ones like there was a burnt offering. A burnt offering was always a male animal. And the male animal was slaughtered. Now, when we say slaughtered, sometimes we think that means dissected. That's not what the Bible means. When it means slaughtered, it means it was throat was cut and it died. Now, after it had been slaughtered, then various things were done. We might just basically call it manipulation. But there was a manipulation of the flesh of the animal and the blood of the animal in relationship to the specific type of sacrifice that was occurring. So you had the offerer, you had the offering, you had the priest, and then you had some kind of manipulative activity that dealt with the, the carcass and the remains of the sacrificial victim. In the burnt offering, this was the most serious of the offerings, and the idea was there, you have transgressed, and there is the need for the cleansing of your transgression, and as a result of that, you bring this animal. Now, with it being a male animal, that was significant because a male animal was more valuable than a female animal just because of the ability of the male animal to reproduce itself multiple times. So that made the male animal more valuable. And when this male sacrificial victim was placed on the altar and completely burned up, notice nothing of that victim was for any other human purpose. So there was nothing that you got out of the whole burnt offering. It was totally consumed. And that made it, again, an, a, a picture of how serious sin was. But the, the promise was that sin had been atoned for and that your prayers would be answered. And you would have faith that what God had promised had been accomplished through this whole burnt offering. There were grain offerings. Most of all the offerings were attached, had attached to them a grain offering. And you would offer fine flour, oil, frankincense, and always having salt as a part of this. The grain could be already parched or the grain could be unparched. And you would take the grain offering, certain stipulated amounts, and you would give it to the priest. And the priest would take and portion it. And portions of it went to the burnt offering to the fire, others became a part of the property of the priests that offered that uh, grain offering. And the idea was there that this was part of the compensation for the priest and his family. And so the grain offering was there with the salt and it was symbolizing a dimension. And the dimension was with the salt, the permanence of the covenant relationship that existed between originating from God, and then coming down to man. So the salt was symbolic and representative of not the cleansing of guilt, 
and of sin, but rather of the constancy of a relationship. It was, it was of a nature that you would know that as you offered this offering to God, that God was your God. You were his child, and you were in fellowship because of this offering. The peace offering was more like a communal meal. Again, it could be a male or a female. It could be a various kind of an animal. And you would bring that, and the, the animal would be slaughtered, then the animal would be prepared. And when this took place with the peace offering, the only thing that was consumed, that was required to be consumed on the altar, was the fat. And so the fat would be consumed, but then the meat could be divided. And you and your family would get a portion of the meat, and the priest and his family would get a portion of the meat, and there would be a kind of a communal meal that you would have in the presence of God with your family. And you can think about a great benefit of this today where the family was being instructed over and over again, our God is a God of our family. And we are in covenant as a family with this God. And there is peace. And it was a celebration of peace in which what was remembered in the peace offerings were all the mighty victories that God had accomplished, but primarily the peace offering remembered the, the, the time of the exodus in how God had rescued Israel out of the bondage to uh, Egypt and sin to Satan. And so it was a celebration. Then there was a sin offering. And in this type of an offering, it was dealing with ritual cleansing. Maybe something had unintentionally happened to you out there in the world that made you ceremonially unclean and unfit to be in the presence of God. Um, and, and, and this defiled you. The sin offering was intended to remove all of this defilement so that you would know. Now, do you ever do something and know that you've defiled yourself? Uh, there, I won't tell you the, the commercial that's out there, but it got me. to remove the defilement. Now, there's a problem with conscience and defilement. You've got it in your conscience. God tells you to cleanse, but if you don't have faith, you go away and what? You remember what you've done. And you think about being defiled. In other words, you don't accept it by faith. But these people were being trained to accept this by faith, that through this sacrifice, the defilement had been removed. And then there was the guild offering. <clears throat> Again, this was a, a breaking primarily of covenant loyalty with God. 
And if you broke loyalty with God, it was remedied through the offering of the animal in a guild offering. It would be something like this. Uh, God says that we make 100% in what were we supposed to return to God that belongs to God. How much? So you don't do it. Now you have done what with God's stuff? If you kept his 10%, what have you done? Done stole from not good. So the guild offering was you would bring the animal and then you would bring that which needed to be restored and you would add a fifth to it. So if your tithe was 50 bucks, you would bring the guild offering, but with the guild offering, you wouldn't bring 50 bucks, you would bring 55, something like that, 52, 50, or whatever it would be. You'd bring that and add it to it. What did you know when you walked away? Your guilt had been cleansed. You had not violated your relationship with God. Now again, a variety of sacrifices that are there to represent a various levels of defilement and violations of our relationship with God in sin against this holiness and against this justice. But with this variety of cleansing, not just one cleansing for everything, but a variety of cleansing so that you would know when you left there that God had in fact cleansed you according to his standards. Not your standards, God's standards. And he accepted it. Now, we take a look at Christ as our perfect sacrifice. In John 1.29 and John 1.36, John the Baptist makes two statements about Jesus. The first is the fullest. He says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now if you go and you hear the production Messiah, you hear that song. Or behold the Lamb of God. These were the two statements that John made. Now what's John saying here? Taking that his statements are representative of the reality. John is saying that Jesus is the one who takes the place of all sacrifices. He is the Lamb of God. So that's what John is saying about Jesus. John is saying that Jesus stands to perfectly accomplish what the Old Testament sacrifices could only partially accomplish. Jesus accomplishes it perfectly. John is saying that Jesus stands as one human being to represent all others that would put their faith in him. Just like in the Old Testament where the people put their faith that God was accepting what was being done with this lamb or this bull or whatever it was. In the same way, Jesus is put forward by God as the one that we're to have our faith in, that his sacrifice is all 
that God requires. And it's for anybody that will put their faith in him. Now John is also saying, and this is important, that Jesus is the sacrifice that God has sent, that God has ordained, that God has provided. Now remember the story of Abraham and Isaac? Abraham's going to offer Isaac. The two of them are walking along. And Isaac's kind of summing up the situation. He looks at this and he says, you know, Father, I see the wood. I see the fire. But where's the lamb? Now, how do you like to be Abraham? Here's faith. Here's faith. What does Abraham say? God will provide a lamb for himself. You see it? So when Jesus comes as his sacrifice, this is the lamb that God has provided, not us. It's not a human sacrifice. It's God's sacrifice. John is saying that Jesus' sacrifice is not only for Israel. Takes away the sin of the world. That means for anybody that will put their faith in him. Again, you know some rascals. You may have been one. And Paul was a rascal and a bad one. And you're probably not as bad as him. And you probably don't know any that are as bad as him. And he put his faith in Jesus, and everything changed. That's what we need to be able to say. And John is saying that Jesus is once for all. Notice what it says. He takes away, takes away the sin of the world. Takes it away. I mean, some of you need to process that. Because you think away is maybe from here to here. That's away. You got that? You could be from here to here, and it would be away. And some of you think that way about your sin. But that isn't what this is talking about. Psalm 139, or Psalm 103, as far as the east is from the west. That's how far away. He has removed our sin from us. That's what's being promised here about Jesus. Now, when we look at this, we see that Christ is our sacrifice. John's gospel tells us that it's the gospel of believing, that union comes to us with Christ through our faith in Christ. Paul can tell us that when we put our faith in Jesus as our sacrifice, it meets all the dimensions of our life with God the Father. Because of our sin, God's wrath. Because of Christ's propitiation, the removal of wrath and the establishment of love and fellowship. Where there was bondage, the bondage has been replaced by redemption. We've been set free to the glorious liberty of the children of God. Where there was alienation in the relationship, 
It is removed by the blood of Christ. We sing redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Reconciliation, we're reconciled through Christ's blood, and we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Sacrifice brings cleansing from sin and guilt, and it brings purity and a consciousness that Jesus' blood has taken away our sin and our guilt. We go from having no relationship to atonement, some people say at one in order that we know that through Jesus, everything's been repaired. Now, just closing, two thoughts here from 9.14. You can see in 9.13 that it's not by the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled. That was satisfactory for the day and accomplished what it promised. But now you've got a comparison with the superlative. How much more the blood of Christ, how much more the blood of Christ to cleanse your consciousness, your conscience. That's what we need. Now when you come to chapter 10, it's talking about our bodies being washed with pure water and our consciences being cleansed from an evil conscience. The language here, I've preached on this passage a number of times. I invariably title the sermon, God's Maytag. What do we know about a Maytag clothes washer? What? They never break. So you got the, 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 the repairman, he's always sitting there playing checkers or twiddling his thumb. There's nothing to repair. Jesus, it says, having our conscience cleansed, having our bodies washed. This is what it means to engage in a relationship with the living God. He is doing this through his son over and over and over again for us. He is cleansing your conscience. We look in faith to Christ, and he cleanses our conscience. We look in faith for him. He knows that he has made us clean through him. One last thing, the word let us. Piety is I believe this. That's piety. That I believe these things to be true. Christianity is, it's true for us. Let us. One day I'm down. Some of you come along and bolster me up. One day you're down. One of us comes along and bolsters you up. This is the most incredible thing that we can see. We're in this cleansing. What? Have you ever met somebody that feels overwhelmed by their sin? Do they, know the, do they know the right stuff? Yeah. Are they thinking about it? No. And you pull them aside and you say, you know, have you thought about what Jesus did? Not in a while. You need to think about this. Look what it's saying. I did what you did, and I thought about what Jesus did. And I know that he's cleansed me, and so all of a sudden, you are a part of, like a priest, 
helping to apply the blood of Christ into the lives of people who are sin sick and their conscience gets cleansed. But we do this for one another and we don't forsake it. It's a part of how Christians live together. And as we live this way, well, it says in other passages we're going to press on to maturity. And that's what's being promised here. It's all involved in the sacrifice, perfect in Christ, and perfect for us as we have our faith in him. Well, let's pray. Well, Father, bless us, keep us in Christ's name. Again, we think of these people on I-16, how much they need your grace right now. Be with them throughout this day and the coming days. Be with all these people. It's a desperate time, Father. We pray that you would be merciful to these people and help us to be instruments of your peace in this world. In Christ's name, amen.